All right, please do turn in a copy of God's Word in the Pew Bible. I think it's 877 is the page number. And we are in the Gospel of Luke. There are four Gospels. Uh, Luke is um, a historian, a physician who gives us a perspective. At this point in the story uh, that he is unfolding for us, it's building up to the time when Jesus uh, heads to Jerusalem. There's a great deal of talk here uh, about the kingdom. Christ refers to himself as a king, um, and he, he is a fulfillment of the messianic promises. Uh, people get a little bit confused then. People get a little bit confused now. When we talk about the kingdom of God, what is it that we mean? Uh, there's a part in Luke building up to, we're building up to where Christ will go to his persecution and passion in the city of Jerusalem. And he'll be faced in front of uh, Pontius Pilate. And uh, Pilate says to him in response to a question, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. Uh, so does that mean then, you would naturally think, well, I guess that means that it's only a spiritual thing. It, it doesn't have anything to do with the, the present or this, this world or this realm. It's only a spiritual, uh, invisible reality. Uh, but that wouldn't be entirely true. Uh, it wouldn't even be true during the time that Jesus was on earth because he demonstrated his, king, uh, his kingship, his authority, if you will, over things like creation. He walked on water. Uh, he, he fed the hungry. He, uh, he, we'll, we'll study next week. He, he heals people who are sick. He casts out demons. He has authority over the, the spiritual realm. Uh, but we also know that that is uh, in part and in full, the kingdom is not Yeah, the kingdom of God is already, but the kingdom is simultaneously not yet. There are things that are in part, and there's things that we will someday see in full. But right now, regardless, even though we don't see Jesus, even as we read in the Heidelberg Catechism uh, this morning, he is definitely, uh, you know, physically contained in a body, but he's returning again. We know that his, his kingship uh, will be fuller, but he is still king right now, sitting at the right hand of, of the Father, even when he gave the Great Commission in Matthew 28. He said, all authority has been given uh, to me, and then he is ascended. A uh, fa- favorite uh, Bible teacher, R.C. Sproul, uh, writes this. John Calvin said, it's the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. And we do that, this is us as followers of Christ, by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, in our families, our schools, our, even our checkbooks, because God, is, God in Christ is king over every one of those spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. So that's where we ultimately, uh, this is the outpost. We, we gather here this morning as the church because we're citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And this is the embassy that we came to. We are, we are, sometimes we refer to ourselves as resident aliens. We live on this continent at this time in this culture. But our allegiances ultimately, yes, we say, I said it at a basketball game this week. I, you know, I, I, I stood for the, the national anthem and, and, uh, and we, you know, we, we honor the flag. We're grateful that we live in this country. But our ultimate allegiance is to a king and a kingdom that is ultimately yet to come. And yet he is presently king. And we want to make that visible, invisible kingdom visible. Now, last week, talking about the kingdom, when people are saying, well, who enters the kingdom and how do I get access to it? Uh, And how do I relate to King Jesus? Jesus is the one, 
right? Who tells us uh, this story of, of three parties, right? Luke records it. Jesus tells us a, a, a story about a tax collector. Uh, he tells us a story about a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the, were the three parties, the Pharisees, the tax collector, and the children. The Pharisees are the highly regarded religious leaders of the day. The tax collectors, we said, are the, the slimy bunch of traitors. And then the children are the ones who are just, you know, periphery. They're not, they're not exalted. Uh, they're, they're oftentimes overlooked, uh, used for, uh, you know, purposes. They're not as important and as, as esteemed in our modern uh, culture. Recall, of course, that there were parents, children were viewed as an encumbrance, but nevertheless, the parents who knew of Jesus to be a great rabbi said, we must take our children to be blessed by Jesus. Even, it said, even the infants, just verses prior to where we are in Luke 18, uh, earlier in the chapter, it says they brought their children that Jesus might touch them, that, he would, that they would receive a, a blessing. Now, uh, that was commendable that the, the, the parents did that. And we, we spoke of this last week. Did they seek the child's permission to bring them to Jesus? No. <laughs> they, like infant, baby, toddler, child, you're going with us to Jesus because this is where hope and truth is and blessing. Now, Jesus then goes and turns it and says, oh, no, no, don't hinder them for such is the kingdom of God. You can't even enter the kingdom unless you come in like a child, uh, humble, dependent, a needy, confessing that you, uh, you know, that you need God. That's how we, in the simplest of ways, come to know and trust in God, offering nothing in return. We, we don't come to him and say, oh, would you please adopt me? I'm so wonderful. You know, it, that's not how it works ever. It, it's God sees us. And sets his love on us. And then after he adopts us, then he begins to transform us into people who are surrendered to the king. So uh, let me invite you one more time to stand in deference to God's word. And we're going to read Luke 18, beginning in verse 18. This is probably familiar uh, to many of you. Hear this. This is the word of God. And a ruler asked him, that is Jesus, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and your mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack Sell all you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, well, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, see, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word. Uh, you may be seated. Let me ask his help. Our Father, um, 
Would you please have this text uh, shine truth and grace uh, inwardly to the inner uh, seat of our very being and to our hearts that we might be humbled uh, in, in ways that you know we need to. And you might be exalted because you're worthy. We pray, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, bless us. Amen. So why is it that the children come, as I mentioned, just verses prior to our text? Why do the children come and why does this rich young ruler walk away? This man was talking to Jesus, the God man, face to face. And he gets a personal invitation here in verse 22, a promise and an invitation to him. He's talking to him. And he walks away. That is crazy. <laughs> we think to ourselves, we say, are you mad? Uh, are you a fool? What are you thinking? Why don't you at least stick around and say, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to find it hard to do that, that, uh, that one thing you asked me to do, but I'm going to stick around and see if it, you know, I'm, it might percolate up. I, you know, maybe I'll warm up to the idea. He's sad and he leaves. I heard a preacher once ask, what in the world has the power to make people act stupid? Well, some of you know the answer to that one, don't you? There are a host of things. There's a host of scenarios. Sometimes all it takes is some alcohol. Other times it just takes a TV camera being shined in your direction. You know? I mean, some people, they don't act stupid. They act shy and go away. But some people, you put a, you put a camera on them and you just never know what they're going to do. One time I went skiing in flannel boxer shorts for the, for the news on a, on, a, on a ski slope on the side of a, of a mountain in North Carolina just because a news camera showed up. Sports events, that, that can make people act like a fool. You've all been there. I mean, I, I've seen people, you know, their whole body on a freezing cold day like yesterday even with their, their shirt off and, you know, painted in different colors. Here's one. If you give a, a, a person in downtown Boston... Here you are in Back Bay. Here's a set of keys. It's Friday. It's 3 p.m. And I want you to drive down to the Indicate Cot. Let's see how that person acts, right? Let's see how the, oh, it's, it's summertime. It's summertime. <laughs> They're on Route 3. Yeah, you see how people, you know that some things can make people act like a fool. Things that we do that would embarrass us. Here's one. Money. Who wants to be rich? Well, we're all supposed to want to be rich. I, that's exactly what the culture, it's, in, it's deeply entrenched and ingrained. Those who grow older are perhaps wanting to sound more uh, sophisticated. And we say, oh, I don't care about money and possessions. I'm perfectly content. I'm not impressed with all that stuff. But there's a reason that Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and to destruction. I guess what I'm trying to say is that money at times can stupefy, even blind us. It can confuse us. It can deceive us. It can cloud our vision. You may say, well, it isn't a good thing I'm not rich. Let's think about that. Reality check, globally, historically, we are so rich, it's hard to conceive of. There's never been a time and a place where people have lived 
with the level of comfort, ease, heat, access, food, transportation, medical care. There have been historically over time, it's hard to believe that that actually goes on to to today. I was in Bangladesh a year ago this month. That still sticks out to me, the, the difference, the stark difference. But if you look at it in a historical way, there are people living what would be considered below the poverty line who are living way beyond what people in royalty years ago would have no idea about how good it is. There are people that even up through the the 19th and 20th century had children die in infancy. Multiple children in families died at a young age. Because they, don't, they didn't have the access to health care like we do. These are all resources, right? These are all opportunities. Nothing inherently wrong about any of those things. Nothing. But they're just, they serve the prospect of being tempting and deceiving because they can invite us to put our trust in them. The question for us is going to be this morning, where is our trust and where is our treasure? When Jesus says, in the big things and the small things of life, will you follow me? Then it becomes exposed, right? Now, there's three revealing questions uh, in the text that I just read. And here they are. They're listed in the order of service, each to a person. And all of them are a question. But all of them, and I'll come back around to this, have a question behind the question. Some of them are statement. So you look for the question behind it. There's the rich, there's the rich ruler. There's Jesus who has a question. And then there are the disciples. Peter, representing the disciples, in verse 28, has a question. First question, it's the rich young ruler. Verse 18, what do I owe God? Right, let's look at the text again. The ruler, we know elsewhere that he's rich. Here he's mentioned as a ruler. It says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit uh, eternal life? Uh, This man is wealthy on two different fronts. Materially, And spiritually, morally, you should say, probably more in the realm of morality, morality and materially, this man is is wealthy. But it's you get the sense that he lacks something. He gets the sense that he lacks something. So he's coming to Jesus saying, what can you do to just round me out to to fill out my life to, uh, you know, I'm almost there. I just need a, a capstone to kind of close it all out. I'm pretty close. I'm near the summit. He's probably thinking. You might even argue that he's proud about that. I'm pretty close. Then Jesus asked this question. Then he asked Jesus the question, what must I do? Or or in some translations, it'll say, uh, what good must I do to inherit eternal life? That's in verse 18. Maybe you caught this. When you read it, you kind of go, why did Jesus even answer that question? Why, why didn't Jesus just say, uh, nothing? Next question. What did he just say? It's, it's, it's first to last. It's all of grace. What, what, are, what do you mean? What can you do? There's nothing you can do. Come trust me. Follow me. But he has a strategy. Jesus does. He's going to enter into where he is. He begins with the list of the, the horizontal Ten Commandments. Did you catch that this morning? This morning, we read the vertical ones. Did you hear those? They're vertical, and then you get to the fifth commandment, and it starts to go horizontal to people made in God's image. Sometimes a helpful way to actually remember the Ten Commandments. 
wonder if Jesus was tempted to say, I find that hard to believe. When, the, when his reply is, all of these I've kept for my youth. Can I call your mom? Unless, come on. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm Jesus and I found it hard to believe. You know, I, but he did do that. Jesus definitely could say that. The young guy, I'm like, I don't know. Something tells me that you have not truly honored all authority in your life, not even your parents. Then Jesus, interestingly enough, he's not critical. He asks a follow-up question. Verse 21, excuse me, he, to, to Jesus, he asked the question, what then do I lack? He said, I've kept all these from youth. And when Jesus hears that, he says, one thing you still lack. So here's the question behind the question. What do I owe God? What extraordinary things can I do to make God actually owe me? Owe me blessing. Owe me favor and eternal life. What? I've already done so much. I just want to know what I can do to go into bonus points. I was not one of those students. Maybe you were. All the years that I've lived in New England, this has been really the most common answer. I, I mean, I have conversations with people all the time. I say, do you believe that God loves you? Why do you believe that God loves you? Most people say, maybe it's a different story, you know, in, in downtown Cambridge, you know. I don't, it, but most people on the South Shore, I say, do you believe God loves you? They don't say, well, there is no, there's no God. It's an irrelevant discussion. Most people in the South Shore say, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to believe that God loves me. I've done a lot of good things in life. I've done a lot of bad things. I just hope the good things outweigh the bad things. And at the end of the day, I'm basically a good person. Well, even the disciples here thought that this man, this rich young man was a virtuous person, upstanding. But Jesus knows where this man's allegiances reside. This man knows his heart. Jesus peers right into the heart of this man. He cuts all the way through the surface. I heard uh, a teacher one time point out the fact that a sewing needle, now you know that Jesus has mentioned the eye of a needle, but a sewing needle, if you look at a sewing needle uh, with just uh, the naked eye, you, you can hold it up and, and it looks pristine and, and maybe it's stainless, it's perfect and it looks, looks great. But if you, look at a, if you look at a needle up close under a microscopic view, there is all kinds of Flaws and issues that are there. It's, it is actually quite scary to look at things in a microscopic way, you germaphobes. <laughs> but other things, right? It, 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 it's, you know, even the prettiest of people up close in a microscopic way don't look so pretty. Think of it from the vantage point, the viewpoint of a holy God who knows all things. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He knows all these things. What is his viewpoint on this man? Well, let's move on to the next question. It's Jesus' question. Verse 22, will you follow me? Will you follow me? What's the one thing? He's going to uncover this man's heart. Sell all of your possessions and give to the poor and follow me. Will you do it? Well, no, then now, now there's the answer to your question. Verse 23, the young man, the wealthy man walks away. He's filled with sorrow because he had great wealth. And these possessions, 
course, now we see it from a different vantage point. We say, oh, well, now that reveals what? It reveals that he didn't own things. It revealed that things owned him. Because he couldn't conceive of doing that. It's very clear in Matthew 5, when Jesus is giving the Sermon on the Mount, he makes it very clear that you cannot love both God and money at the same time. They will be in competition. Didn't mean money's bad. People always misquote that verse. I'm, 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 I'm unabashedly, this is off the record from the sermon. I'm, I'm a capitalist, okay? People say, oh, well, you know, that lo- you know, money is the root of all evil. No, that's a misquoted verse. Second opinions, chapter five. Let me tell you what the Bible actually says. It says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. That's what Jesus said. What does it mean? Let me change gears for a second. What does it mean when a person wears this? Well, it might mean different things in different cultures, but as far as the Western world is concerned, if I'm wearing this ring, what does it communicate? This is not my original wedding band. I lost it in Oldham Pond on a sailboat. But uh, <laughs> this is my $10 Amazon whatever metal it is, if it is even metal. And I'm wearing it because I do want to communicate something, and it communicates exclusivity. It, ex- it, it hopefully communicates that I have made promises or you have made promises to a spouse that says, I'm going to have fidelity here. No more girlfriend, no more boyfriend, no, no, no more intimacy with other people uh, in the way that we share, in any, and especially a, a member of the opposite sex. This is important stuff that you're communicating exclusivity. You have my heart. But is that all, right? Even if we pledge faithfulness externally, but there is no love in our heart or sacrifice or desire to serve or care. Is that right and beautiful and pleasing? No, it's only external. And Jesus knows that. So he knows that we could go through the externality of obedience. But he really does desire an a inward allegiance to love God and to love our neighbor with our whole self. That's why the law is summarized that way. But if you only keep the law with reference to external performance, then you've missed it. You can't in entirety. But even if you tried, you would still miss it because you're not dealing with the internal heart. In fact, conversations. Uh, I remember one time a conversation with someone uh, who was, uh, was visiting our church. They said, I liked all the Ten Commandments. It's just that one at the beginning. You mean the one about you should have no other gods before me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That exclusive stuff about God. But that's where the whole law hinges. Everything begins with, actually, it begins even before that. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. I love you. I'm in covenant with you. I care about you. I provide for you. I'm, I'm there for you. I've redeemed you. I'm pursuing you. You're my people. Now, now, this is what I want you to do in response to the covenant. It all hinges upon me. The man was moral and rich, but he was a fool. And Jesus just exposed that money was his one true God before others. His inability to love God and his neighbor with his wealth. Has riches deceived you at any point? It's a curious thing that can deceive you. That's why Jesus is saying in verse 25 that uh, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle which is impossible altogether. It's translated in our modern vernacular. There's a snowball's chance in hell. 
So you understand that money can allure our trust, but it's not impo- it is impossible, but all things are possible with God, even for wealthy people to be saved. Some of you will note, though, that this is exceptional, that he asked him to give away and sell all of his possessions. When Jesus, uh, is Jesus asking us to do that? Well, no, I, I don't. I mean, to a person, I don't know, but I'm not saying that's a universal call. We even know that another scumbag that we find in the New Testament, uh, Zacchaeus, was a tax collector, and he only asked him to sell half of his possessions. So you can't boil this down. And you say, oh, that's great, because I'm, you know, I wasn't, I'm definitely not going to give away all my money. And Okay, you haven't sold everything. But have you sold anything? Have you given up anything? We've been talking about money. Let's, let's, let's hit pause for a second and let's just open it up a little bit more. Is there anything that you have given up, sold or forsaken on account of God? Is there anything that you're currently doing or perhaps foregoing or prioritizing simply out of love for Jesus? Can you point to anything in your life that is solely there because you are a follower of Jesus Christ? The question behind the question is, what has your heart and who is your God? Will you follow me? We'll expose that deeper question. So here's... The application, in part, on this point is an assessment. Where is your heart? Where are some of the the dark places that are closed off to the light of the glory of Jesus? His holiness. What's in competition? What are the functional gods in our lives? The, The little g gods. get a call from Lowe's this week about tearing out some carpet to replace it. They, they automatically say, when was your house built? Because if it was built before 19, I don't know what that magic number is, 70 something. Um, there's a chance that you have lead in your home. So we're going to do a lead test. Okay. That's a lot of homes in, in New England. Okay. Um, if you were born before, no, let me think about this. If you were born to a, a woman, if you're a human, the chances are You have an idol in your heart. John Calvin said, the human heart is an idol-making factory. And what's being exposed for this guy, the rich young ruler, is his money. But for us, it could be any number of things. Years ago, I read an article that now is like 25 years old. It still rings so true to me. David Pallison, who's a gifted, was, passed away a few years ago, a gifted counselor and writer, has an article called X-Ray Questions. He has 35 of them. And some of these are very piercing. I'll read off a few of them. Bear with me. If you want to try to locate and identify what it might be in your life that is a little g-god, an idol, what answer some of these questions. What do you love? What do you hate? What do you want and desire and crave and lust and wish for? What do you desire who? And what do you desire to serve and obey? What do you seek and aim for and pursue? What do you bank your hopes on? What do you fear? What do you not want? What do you tend to worry about? Where do you find refuge and safety and comfort and escape and pleasure and security? What or whom do you trust? 
Whose performance matters? On whose shoulders does the well-being of your world rest? Who can make it better, make it work, make it safe, make it successful? Whom must you please? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Who are your role models? On your deathbed, what would sum up your life as, quote, worthwhile? Are we getting somewhere? What gives your life meaning? What makes you feel rich, secure, and prosperous? What must you get to make life sing? What would bring you, to the, what would bring you the greatest pleasure, happiness, and delight, or the greatest pain and misery? What do you pray for? What do you think about most often? What preoccupies or obsesses, or obsesses you? Are you locating it? Some of you didn't need the list. If you're like me, you're, you, you might be acquainted with some of them uh, right now. Sometimes we're blind to them, sometimes we're not. I usually know, often I do. I'm glad that they don't own me. Thank you, God. Thank you they don't own me. But they sure do tempt me. They tempt me to trade the temporal for the eternal. Jesus is saying, sell it. Turn it off. Move away. Give it up. This man is greedy. And so the only antidote to greed is generosity. Sorry, can't do it. There's no negotiated repentance Jesus calls him to. He just says, do it. Let's look at this last question. Because some of you have given up things. If you haven't given up anything to follow Jesus, then you're not following Jesus. I, I, don't, I, I don't mean that in an accusatory way. I mean that in a loving way. Like this is, it does mean something. There, there should be something in our life. The disciples, namely Peter, let's look at verse 28 in the text. Peter said, see, this is right on the heels of when him saying what's impossible with man is possible with God. Peter says, see, we, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly, I I say to you, there is no one who's left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God. Who's not going to receive that and manifold blessing beyond. Now, look, before we even look further at this question, because the question behind the question for Peter is what's what's in it for us? What, What is this worth it? What do we have if we follow you? But before we look at that, let's just establish the reality that we often observe, and that is everyone's going to die. The question is, who, who will be saved? Who will be at peace with their maker? Who will face the judgment with, with, with hope? I, you look at this man, he was morally and materially very wealthy, but he's doomed to hell. The, guys, the rest of the disciples say, well, then who is saved? Well, who is saved? I'll tell you, anyone. It, the, the free offer of the gospel is for anyone. For anyone who would, would in essence, Repent and dethrone all of the, any and all of the false gods. For that to happen, it's a, it's a miraculous work of God's spirit to repent of that false worship. God can change your heart. He can change my heart. He has, and I'm, I'm glad if we surrender to him like a child. Like a child, by faith. I need help. God, I need, I need forgiveness. I, I need mercy. I, 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 I can't do this on my own. I can't fix myself. I can't save myself. I can't change myself. I can't atone or pay for my sins by myself. Luke wanted. <clears throat> no, 
God wanted the juxtaposition to be here between this set of children who were coming to him in the verses previous and this rich man, this self-sufficient man. What do you consider to be um, an adult? I, I, I have a list of things that I want to teach my children before they turn 18. You know, skills, categories, stuff. What, what's a mature adult? Well, it's, you know, obviously you'd say, well, it's someone that could be independent. They could move, move, move on and be emotionally, financially independent and, and somewhat self-sufficient. But to live by faith is actually to go in reverse. I had this great conversation with my mother-in-law this week about the nature of that. Like to come to, to come to Christ is not to grow more and more and more and more into independence. It's to acknowledge that I've been trying so long to live that way. And now as a father of you, I'm going to trust you as a child. And I'm going to grow, 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 grow in dependence upon you. We're actually going in reverse. We're not saying, God, hey, I'm glad I got you on Sunday. I, you know, maybe we'll talk again next Sunday, but I, I'm good this week. It's been real. We'll see you next week. God said, well, I was hoping we'd have a conversation later on today and, and tomorrow morning that you would, you would call upon me. But the disciples have doubts, don't they? Like, I, I, it's so hard. Like, we've given up so much. There's a lot on the horizon. Like, if I follow Jesus, this is... This is going to get, if we head to Jerusalem and you're going to do what you said you're going to do, that means that you're going to suffer. And we are too. The question behind the question for Peter in verse 28 is, is this worth it? And I love it that Jesus doesn't rebuke him and say, what do you mean you left your, who cares? I'm so much, he, 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 he entertains it. He doesn't rebuke him. It's fair. The cost is high, but all of it pales, Jesus is saying, in comparison to the benefits of being united to him. We must see them. To see that, to perceive it, is to do it by faith and trust in the character of God, the promises of God, the grace and power of God. I'm not a big fan of, of uh, romantic comedies, okay? I'm a big fan of my wife, She's a fan of romantic comedy, so we watch them. Um, there's one that, that came out many, many years ago called Fever Pitch. It's got Jimmy Fallon. He, pays, he plays a guy named Ben. Some of you have seen the movie, maybe, Fever Pitch. It's got a really great redeeming quality. Uh, the main guy in the movie is a huge Red Sox fan, and uh, he comes from a, a family that has these you know, like, like generational pass-down season tickets to the Red Sox, thinks it's awesome. Ben's obsessed with the Red Sox over and over again. He's constantly talking about it. Then he meets a girl. Interstage left. Lindsay. Lindsay, who doesn't know or appreciate anything about baseball, his love for the Red Sox ends up, of course, threatening their relationship because he loves the Red Sox too much. And they ended up breaking up. Sorry, spoiler alert. Until, oh, he comes to his senses. At one point in the movie, a friend asks him, I love this line in the movie, he says to Ben, You love the Red Sox. But have they ever loved you back? <laughs> Who wins the day? Lindsay. <laughs> have your idols ever loved you back?
Jesus has loved you with a steadfast, sacrificial love. Nothing compares to that. Sure, he calls us to love the Lord our God first and foremost. It's a radical call and we are to treasure him. But everything else seems non-rewarding. It just seems unfulfilling, trivial, shallow. Nothing compares to God's heart. Nothing compares to God's cause, God's wisdom, God's promises, God's truth. Nothing compares to God's inheritance for us as his children in Christ. But let's be clear, it's not a reward that we earn. It's one that we are granted, we are given by grace. Our obedience is not something that God somehow repays us back with interest. You, in the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God, not yet, you and I who are in Christ will enjoy rewards and riches. But that's because of our devotion, our surrender, our childlike dependence upon God. It's all on account of Christ, his good deeds. He sold everything, Jesus. He abandoned all of his rights, the praise of the angels of the, of the host in heaven. And he entered into our world to sacrifice his own life. He loves you. I hope you never get tired of hearing that. God loves you. The Father loves you. The Son, the Spirit. Second Corinthians, I close with this, eight. For you know that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you may become rich. Father, thank you for your word. Grant to us a willingness, even right now, to admit our great need. Help us to exercise a faith, God, that is uh, radical, is, is, is generous, is sacrificial even, and certainly joyful. But that won't happen unless we're a humble people. So would you make us humble, people who love and who care without prejudice, people who, who locate their idols and, and we seek to put them out into death. Help us to be people who care about the virtues of the kingdom, that we might even make part of the invisible kingdom visible with our love, with our generosity, with our pursuit of truth and justice. Would we be a people who are loyal to the king? Please work that. Lord, you told us, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek. Would you transform us more into the image of that? You, King Jesus I pray that today you'd bless our brothers and sisters, the church in other parts of the world who are persecuted severely and face suffering. Lord, I pray even here that amidst our wealth that you would protect the purity and the peace and the unity of your church. Would you please, Father, today encourage missionaries who are serving to advance that good news message cross-culturally some in very hard places. I pray, especially this morning, for Colin and Zuri in West Africa, that you'd sustain their work as they reach out, as they support your church, as they care for people. I pray you'd be with people in our midst, in our church family who are grappling with sickness. Those who are grappling with grief, I pray that especially, God, this morning for the Hegriches as they miss Sapphire so much as we do. May your angels protect her. May your spirit comfort them. Encourage, Lord, bring your healing touch to those who are sick. I pray you would again be with our youth, even now as they drive back, that you would protect them. 
that they would have a readiness and eagerness to follow you more. You would warm their hearts. You would warm our hearts this morning. Even now as we come to the Lord's table and as we pray in the name of Jesus who taught his disciples to pray, saying together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as 